I don't have like a good fake spooky voice or anything, so I'm not even going to attempt that. Um, good evening. <laughs> good evening. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. C- calling me for a fake spooky, a big, big gay fake spooky voice. I watched Alfred Hitchcock presents a lot when I was a kid, and it always struck me as like, was this supposed to be scary? It's just sort of like weird well-mannered people behaving strangely like <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first alfred hitchcock was a cop um, <laughs> i i remember i remember my forcing norms Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> i remember my dad forcing me to watch like basically the entire i think it was like like when criterion collection could be gotten from like the, the like DVD Netflix like thing my dad like making me watch like every Alfred Hitchcock movie and I was like eight and I just <laughs> I remember not having the same reaction to you Phil I just remember being like terrified no no I'm talking about the series I'm talking about the, yeah, the TV the series Alfred Hitchcock oh. presents which is where Good Evening comes from yeah, yeah word <laughs> but well um so we're here we're because... here because it's Halloween mm-hmm. which is my favorite holiday always has been and we thought a nice sort of Halloween treat for everyone would be to unlock an amazing thing that happened kind of spontaneously earlier this year. A special bonus from earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Fruits of quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even know how to introduce this properly. So this is a, I guess, audio book, uh, essentially. It's or an this experience. Is a, this it's, is a, a, it's a Death Panel Presents immersive experience i yeah, think this is a special presentation um <laughs> of phil reading a story book called the black gondolier mm-hmm. do you have, actually phil do you want to introduce yeah, this maybe i think do you guys remember when uh we hit negative oil um right. mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. summer yeah and mm-hmm. um, that really affected phil <laughs> it really yeah well it was we were talking about it and it's like the idea of these you know the transport of oil and uh the story black gondolier came came to mind, but, uh, I don't want to say too much about it. Let's just say, you know, settle in, um, think about petroleum fields, you know, the history of Aramco <laughs> and, you know, American mm-hmm. empire, et cetera. And, uh, you know, settle in for a, uh, a relaxing time, maybe pour a glass of your favorite, uh, VSOP, um, <laughs> and dim the lights, chill the ham. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ahead, sorry, sorry, I live in Wisconsin. These are things yeah, that yeah, you no, no, it's, I'm, lo- I'm loving it. I'm These loving it. These are our folk ways. Please. <laughs> I mean, and if you've ever wondered why there is a um, black oil emote in our Discord server, the you'll know now. Oil, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so good. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So without so, further ado. Happy Halloween, everyone. Please enjoy. Enjoy. If you cool. dare. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> Did I ruin it? I think I ruined it. Mystery is made possible by a grant from Mobile
Black Gondolier by Fritz Leiber. Dalloway lived alone in a broken-down trailer beside an oil well on the bank of a canal in Venice near the Café La Gondola Negra on the Grand Canal, not five blocks from St. Mark's Plaza. I mean, he lived there until, after the fashion of intellectual lone wolves, he got the wander urge and took himself off, abruptly and irresponsibly, to parts unknown. That is the theory of the police, who refused to take seriously my story of Dalloway's strange dreads and my hints at the weird, world-spanning power which was menacing him. The police even make light of the very material clues which I pointed out to them. Or else Dalloway was taken off, grimly and against his will, to parts utterly unknown and blackly horrible. That is my own theory especially on lonely nights when I remember the dreams he told me of the black gondolier. Of course, the canal is a rather small one, showing much of its rough gravel bottom strewn with rusted cans and blackened paper, except when it is briefly filled by one of our big winter rains. But gondolas did travel it in the illusion-packed old days, and it is still spanned by a little sharply humped concrete bridge wide enough for only one car. I used to cross that bridge coming to visit Dalloway, and I remember how I'd slow down and tap my horn to warn of a possible car coming the other way, and the momentary roller coaster illusion I'd get as my car heaved to the top and poised there, then hurtled down the opposite dusty slope for all of a breathless second. From the top of the little bridge I'd get my first glimpse of the crowded bungalows in Dalloway's weed-footed trailer, and close behind it the black hunch-shouldered oil well which figured so strangely in his dreads. Their closest listening post, he sometimes called it during the final week, when he felt positively besieged. And of course, the Grand Canal is pretty dismal these days, with its several gracefully arching bridges of size rattled with holes showing their cement shell construction, and blocked off at either end by heavy wire barricades to keep off small boys, and with both its banks lined with oil wells, some still with their towering derricks, and some mostly those next to the beachside houses with their derricks dismantled, but all of them wearily pumping 24 hours a day, with a soft, slow, syncopated thumping that the residents don't hear for its monotony, interminably sucking up the black petroleum that underlies Venice, lazily ducking and lifting their angularly oval metal heads like so many iron dinosaurs or donkeys forever drinking, donkeys moving in the sonambulistic rhythm of Ferdigroff's Grand Canyon donkey when it does its sleepy hee-haw. Dalloway had a very weird theory about that. About the crude oil, I mean. A theory which became the core of his dreads, and which, for all its utter black wildness, may still best explain his disappearance. And La Gondola Negra is only a beatnik coffee house, successor to the fabulous gas house, though it did boast a rather interesting, dirty, drunken guitarist, whose face always had blacker smears on it than those of his stubbly beard, and who wore a sweatshirt that looked like the working garment of a coal miner, and whom Dalloway and I would hear trailing off, I won't venture to say home, in the small hours of the morning, picking out on his twangy instrument his dinky, 
Texas Oil Man Suite, which he composed very much in imitation of Ferdegroff's one about the Grand Canyon, or raucously wailing his eerie beatnik ballad of the Black Gondola. He got very much on Dalloway's nerves, especially towards the end. Though I was rather amused by him, and at the same time saw no harm in his caterwauling, except to would-be sleepers. Well, he's gone now, like Dalloway, though not by the same route, I think. At least Dalloway never suggested that the guitarist was one of their agents. No, as it turned out, their agent was rather a more formidable figure. And they don't call the plaza St. Mark's, but it was obviously laid out to approximate the Adriatic-lapped area that was created a half-century ago. The porticos still shade sidewalks in front of the two blocks of bars and grimy shops, and there are still authentic Venetian pillars, now painted salmon pink and turquoise blue. You may have seen them in a horror movie called Delirium, where a beautiful, crazy, slim Mexican girl is chased round and round the deserted porticos by a car flashing its headlights between the pillars. And of course, Venice isn't Venice, Italy, but Venice, USA, Venice, California, now just another district and postal address in the sprawling metropolis of Los Angeles, but once a proud little beachside city embodying the laughably charming, if grotesque, dream of creating Venice, Italy, scaled down but complete with canals and arched bridges and porticos on the shores of the Pacific. Yet for all the childish innocence of its bizarre glamour, Venice developed an atmosphere or became an outpost of a sinister, deep-rooted power that did in Dalloway. It is a place of dreams, not only the tinseled ones, but also the darker sort, such as tormented and terrified my friend at the end. For a while toward the beginning of this century, the movie folk and real estate agents and retired farmers and the sailors from San Pedro went to spanking new Venice to ride the gondolas. They had authentic ones pulled by Italian types, possibly hired from central casting, and eat exotic spaghetti and gamble romantically a bit with their wide-hatted, long-skirted lady friends who also wore daring bathing suits with bare arms and rather short skirts and long black stockings, and gamble, too, with piled big yellow-backed green bills, and with their caps turned front to rear, roar their wooden-spoked or wire-wheeled open touring cars along the speedway, which is now a cramped one-way street that changes direction every block. But then Redondo and Laguna and Malibu called away the film folk and the other people with fat pocketbooks. But as if to compensate for that, they struck oil in Venice and built wells almost everywhere. Yet despite this influx of money, the gambling never regained its eclat. It became just bingo for Hal's wives, and the Los Angeles police fought that homely extramural vice for a weary decade until sprawling L.A. reached out a pseudopod one day and swallowed Venice up. Then the bingo stopped, and Venice became very crowded indeed with a beach home or beach apartment or beach shack on every square yard that wasn't sidewalk or street or oil well and with establishments as disparate as Bible Tabernacle and Colonic Irrigation Clinic and Mother Goldberg's Home for the Aged. It would have been going too far to have called Venice a beach slum, but it was trending in that direction. And then much later, the beats came, the gutter geniuses, the holy barbarians, migrating south in driblets from Big Sur and from North Beach in San Francisco and from Disillusion USA everywhere, bringing their ratty art galleries and meager, avant-garde bookstalls and their black-trousered insolent women and their zen and their guitars 
including the one on which was strummed the ballad of the Black Gondola. And with the beats, but emphatically not of them, came the solitary oddballs and lone wolf intellectuals like Dalloway. I met Dalloway at a checkout desk of the excellent Los Angeles downtown public library, where our two stacks of books demonstrated so many shared interests, world history, geology, abnormal psychology, and psychic phenomena were some of them, that we paused outside to remark on it. This led to a conversation in which I got some first intimations of his astonishing mentality, and eventually to my driving him home to save him a circuitous bus trip, or more likely, as I learned later, a weary hitchhike. Our conversation continued excitingly through most of the long drive, though even in that first exploratory confabulation, Dalloway made so many guarded references to a malefic power menacing us all, and perhaps him in particular, that I wondered if he mightn't have a bee in his bonnet about world communism or the syndicate or the John Birch Society. But despite his possible paranoid obsessions, he was clearly a most worthy partner for intellectual disputation and discourse. Toward the end of the drive, Dalloway suddenly got nervous and didn't want me to take him the last few blocks. However, I overcame his reluctance. I remarked in the oil well next to his trailer. Not to have done so would have implied that I thought he was embarrassed by it, and he retorted sardonically, My mechanical watchdog. Innocent-looking ugly beast, isn't it? But you've got to keep in mind that much more of it or of its domain is below the surface. Like an iceberg which reminds me that I once ran across a seemingly well-authenticated report of a black iceberg. Thereafter, I visited Dalloway regularly in his trailer, often late at night, and we made our library trips together and even occasional brief expeditions to sleazily stimulating spots like La Gondola Negra. At first, I thought he had merely been ashamed of his battered aluminum-walled home, though it was neat enough inside, almost austere, but then I discovered that he hated to reveal to anyone where he lived, in part because he hesitated to expose anyone else to the great if shadowy danger he believed overhung him. Dalloway was a spare man, yet muscular, with the watchful analytic gaze of an intellectual, but the hands of a mechanic. Like too many men of our times, he was amazingly learned and knowledgeable, yet unable to apply his abilities to his own advancement for lack of connections and college degrees and because of nervous instabilities and emotional blockages. He had more facts at his fingertips than a PhD candidate, but he used them to buttress off-trail theories, and he dressed with the austere, cleanly neatness and simplicity of a factory hand or a man newly released from prison. He'd work for a while in a machine shop or garage, and then live very thriftily on his savings while he fed his mind and pondered all the problems of the universe, or sometimes, this was before our meeting in the period of his dreads, organized maverick mental therapy or parapsychology groups. This unworldly and monetarily unprofitable pattern of existence at least made Dalloway an exciting thinker. For him, the world was a great conundrum or a series of puzzle boxes, and he, a disinterested yet childishly sensitive and enthusiastic observer, trying to unriddle them. A scientist, or natural philosopher rather, without the blinkered conformity of thought which sometimes characterizes men with professional or academic standing to lose, but rather with a fiercely romantic yet clear-headed and sometimes cynical drive towards knowledge. Atoms, molecules, the stars, the unconscious mind, bizarre drugs and their effects— 
the play of consciousness, the insidious interweaving of reality and dream is climactically in his dreams the black gondola. The bafflingly twisted and folded strata of Earth's crust and man's cerebrum and all history, the subtle, mysterious swings of world events in literature and subliterature and politics, he was interested in all of them and forever searching for some unifying, purposeful power behind them and sensitive to them to a preternatural degree. Well, in the end, he did discover the power, or at least convinced himself that he did, and convinced me too for a time. It still does convince me on lonely nights. But he got little enough satisfaction from his knowledge that I know of, and it proved to be as deadly a discovery to the discoverer as finding out who is really back of organized crime or the dope traffic or American fascism. Gunmen and poisoners and scientifically coached bombers would be loosed against anyone making any of the last three discoveries. The agent who did away with Dalloway was murkier-minded, and deadlier than the man who killed Kennedy. But I mentioned sensitivity. In many ways, it was the hallmark of Dalloway. He'd start at sounds I couldn't hear, or that were blanked out for me by the ceaseless, ponderous, low throb of the oil wells, especially the one a few yards beyond the thin wall of his trailer. He'd narrow his eyes at changes in illumination that didn't register in my retinas, or dart at little movements that I usually missed. He'd twitch his nostrils for special taints that to me were blanketed, or at least in Venice, by the stench of the petroleum and the salt-fishy reek of the ocean. And he'd read meanings in newspaper articles and paragraphs of books that I would never have seen except for his pointing them out. I'm not exactly unsubtle. His sensitivity was almost invariably tinged with apprehension. For example, my arrivals seemed always to startle and briefly upset him, no matter how quiet or deliberately noisy I made them. And regardless of how much he seemed afterwards to enjoy my company, or at least the audience of one which I provided him. Indeed, this symptom, this jitteriness or jumpiness was so strong in him that taken together with his solitary fugitive mode of life and his unwillingness to have his dwelling known, it led me to speculate early in our relationship whether he might not be in flight from the law or the criminal underworld or some fearsomely ruthless political or sub-political organization or from some less tangible mafia. Well, considering the nature of the power Dalloway really feared, its utter black inhumanity, its near omnipresence and almost timeless antiquity, his great apprehension was most understandable, provided, of course, that you accepted his ideas, or at least were willing to consider them. It was a long time before he would unequivocally identify the power to me, give me a specific name to his they, Perhaps he dreaded my disbelief, my skeptical laughter, even feared that I would cut him off from me as a hopeless crank. Perhaps, and this I credit, he honestly believed he would subject me to a very real danger by telling me the same danger he was darkly shadowed by, or at least put me into its fringes, and only took the risk of doing so when the urge to share his suspicions, or rather convictions, with someone capable of comprehending them became an overpowering compulsion. He made several false starts and retreats. Once he began, When you consider the source of the chemical fuels which alone make modern civilization possible, and modern warfare too, the hope or horror of reaching other planets, and then broke off. Another time he launched off with, If there is one single substance that has in it all of life, 
and the potentiality for life and all past life by reason of its sources and all future life by the innumerable, infinitely subtle compounds it provides. And then shut tight his lips and open them only to change the subject. Another of these abortive revelations began with, I firmly believe that there is no validity whatever in the distinction between the organic and inorganic. I think it every bit as false as that between artificial and the natural. It's my absolute conviction that consciousness goes down to the level of the electrons, yes, and below that to the strata of the yet undiscovered particles, the substance which, before all others, convinces me that this is so, is... And once when I asked him without warning, Dalloway, what is it you're afraid of anyhow? He replied, why, the oil, of course and then immediately insisted he was thinking of the possible role of hydrocarbons and coal tars in their combustion products in producing cancer. I had better state as simply as possible Dalloway's ideas about the power, as he finally revealed them to me. Dalloway's theory, based on his wide readings in world history, geology, and the occult, was that crude oil, petroleum, was more than figuratively the lifeblood of industry in the modern world and the modern lightning war, that it truly had a dim life and will of its own, an inorganic consciousness or subconsciousness, that we were all its puppets or creatures, and that its chemical mind guided and even enforced the development of modern technological civilization, created from the lush vegetation and animal fats of the Carboniferous and adjoining periods, holding in itself the black essence of all life that had ever been, constituting, in fact, great deep-digged black graveyard of the ultimate eldritch past with blackest ghosts, oil had waited for hundreds of millions of years, dreaming its black dreams, sluggishly pulsing beneath earth's stony skin, quivering in lightless pools, roofed with marsh grass and in top-filled rocky tanks, and coursing through the myriad channels and through the spongy rocky bone until a being evolved on the surface, with whom it could realize and expend itself. When man had appeared and had attained the requisite sensitivity and the technical sophistication, then oil like some black collective unconscious had begun sending him its telepathic messages. Dalloway, this is beyond belief, I burst out here the first time he revealed to me his theory in toto. Telepathy is by itself dubious enough, but telepathic communication between a lifeless substance and man? Do you know, many companies hunting oil spend more money for dowsers than they do for geologists? He shot back at me instantly. For dowsers and for those psionic electronic gadgets they call doodlebugs. The people whose money is at stake and who know the oil lands in a practical way believe in dowsing, even if most scientists don't. And what is dowsing but a man moving about on the surface until he gets a telepathic signal from something below. In brief, Dalloway's theory was that man hadn't discovered oil, but that oil had found man. Venice hadn't struck oil. Oil had thrust itself up its vicious feelers like some vast blind monster and had made contact with Venice. 
Everyone admits that oil is the lifeblood of modern technological culture. It's automobiles and trucks and airplanes, it's battleships and military tanks, it's ballistic missiles and reekingly fueled space vehicles. In a sense, Dalloway only carried the argument one step further, positing that behind the blood, a heart, and behind the heart, a brain. Surely, in a great age-old oil pool with all its complex hydrocarbons, the paraffin series, the asphalt series, and many others, and with its subtle gradients of heat, viscosity, and electric charge, and with its multiform microscopic vibrations echoing and re-echoing endlessly from its lightless walls, there can be the chemical and physical equivalent of nerves and brain cells, and if of brain cells, then of thought. Some computers use pools of mercury for their memory units. The human brain is fantastically isolated, guarded by bony walls, and by what they call the blood-brain barrier. How much more so subterranean oil with its thick, stony skull and earthen flesh? Or consider it from another viewpoint. According to scientific materialism and anthropologic determinism, man's will is an illusion, his consciousness but an epiphenomenon, a useless mirroring of the atomic swirlings and molecular churnings that constitute ultimate reality. In any such world picture, oil is a far more appropriate primal power than man. Dalloway even discovered the chief purpose of animating oil's mentality, or thought he did. Once when we were discussing spaceflight, he suddenly said, I've got it. Oil wants to get to other planets so that it can make contact with the oil there, converse with extraterrestrial pools, fatten on their millennial strength, absorb their wisdom. Of course, a theory like that is something to laugh at or tell a psychiatrist. And of course, Dalloway may have been crazy or seeking a dark sort of laughter himself. I mean, it is quite possible that Dalloway was deceiving and mystifying me for his own amusement, that he elaborated this whole theory and repeatedly simulated his dreads simply as part of a long, drawn-out practical joke that he noted a vein of credulity in me, and found cruel delight in fooling me to the top of my bent, and that, as the police insist, even the starkly material evidence for the horror of his disappearance, which I pointed out to them, was only a final crude hoax on his part, a farewell jest. Yet I knew the man for months, knew his dreads, saw him start and shiver and shake, heard him rehearse his arguments with fierce sincerity, witnessed the birth quivers of many of his ideas. I did not think so. Oh, there are many times when I doubted Dalloway. Doubted his every word, but in the end his grotesque theory about the oil did not elicit from me the skepticism it might have from another hearing it elsewhere. Perhaps, it occurs to me now, because it was advanced in a metropolis that is such a strange confirmation of it. To the average tourist or reader of travel brochures, Los Angeles is a gleaming city, or a vast, glamorous suburb of movie studios and orange groves and ornate stucco homes and green-tiled long swimming pools and beaches and now great curving freeways and white civic centers and sleekly modern plants, aviation, missile, computer, research, and development. What is overlooked here is that the City of Angels, especially in its southern reaches stretching towards Long Beach, is almost half oil field. These odorous, grim industrial barons interweave elaborately with airfields and showy tract housing developments with an effect of savage irony. There is hardly a point from which one cannot see in the middle or farther distance, looming through the faintly bluish haze of the acrid smog, a hill densely studded with tall oil derricks. Long Beach herself 
is dominated by Signal Hill, with oil towers thick as an army's spears and cruel as the murders which have been committed on its lonely slopes. The first time I ever saw one of those hills, that near Culver City, I instantly thought of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and of his brain-heavy Martians on their lofty metal tripods, wherewith they strode ruthlessly about the British countryside. It seemed to me that I was seeing a congeries of such tower-high beings, and that the next moment they might begin to stride lurchingly toward me with something of the feeling, modernistically distorted, of Macbeth's Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane. And here and there along the oil derricks, like their allies or reinforcements, one sees the gleaming distillation towers and the monstrous angular-shouldered cracking plants with muscles of knotted pipe, and the fields of dull silver oil tanks, livid in the smog, and the vaster gas tanks and the marching files of high-tension wire towers, which look at a distance like oil derricks. And as for Venice herself, with the oil's omnipresent reek, faint or heavy, and with her oil wells cheek by jowl with houses and shacks and eternally throbbing as if pulsing the beat of a vast subterranean chemic heart, well, it was only too easy to believe something like Dalloway's theory there. It was from the beach by Venice in 1926 that Amy Semple McPherson was mysteriously vanished, perhaps teleported to the sinisterly named Mexican town of Blackwater, Agua Prieta. The coming of the illusioneers to Venice, and of the beatniks, and of the black oil, all seemed to like mindless mechanic movements, or compulsively unconscious movements, whether of molecules or of people, and in either case a buttressing of Dalloway's wild theory, at the very least, an ironic picture of modern man's industrial predicament. At all events, the black savage sardonicism of that picture, along with Dalloway's extreme sensitivity, made it easy to understand why his nerves were rasped acutely by the ballad of the Black Gondola, as the black-smeared, lurching, beatnik guitarist came wailing it past the thin-walled trailer in the small hours of the night. I heard it only two or three times, and the fellow's voice was thick to unintelligibility, though abominably raucous, so it was mostly from Dalloway that I got the words the few scattered lines I can remember. They were a half-plagiarized melange of ill-fitted cadences, but with a certain garishly eerie power. Oh, the black gondola's gonna take you for a ride. With a cargo of atom bombs and atlases and nightmares. The black gondola's gonna stop at your door. With a bow wave of asphalt and a gravel spray. The black gondola'll get you yet. Even of those five lines, the second comes with a few changes of word from a short poem by Yeats. The fifth derives from Lindsay's The Congo while the black gondola itself sounds suspiciously like the nihilism symbolizing black freighter in Brechton Biles' The Threepenny Opera. Nevertheless, this crude artificial ballad in which the black gondola seems to stand for our modern industrial civilization, and so very easily for petroleum too, may well have shaped or at least touched off Dalloway's dreams, though his black gondola was of a rather different sort. But before I describe Dalloway's dreams... I had better round out his picture of the power, which he believed dominated the modern world, and, because he was coming to know too much about it, menaced his own existence. According to Dalloway, oil had intelligence, it had purpose, and also, it had agents. These beings, Dalloway speculated, might be parts of itself, able to move independently, man-shaped and man-sized for purposes of camouflage, composed of a sort of infernal black ectoplasm, or something more material than that, a darkly oleaginous humanoid spawn. 
Or they might be, at least to begin with, living men who had become Oyl's worshippers and slaves, who had taken the black baptism or the sable consecration, as he put it with a strange facetiousness. Oyl's dark agents not only spied, according to Dalway, but also dispersed clues leading to the discovery of new oil fields and new uses for oil, and on occasion, removed interfering and overly perceptive human beings. There was Rudolf Diesel, for one, inventor of the all-important engine, Dalloway asserted. What snatched him off that little North Sea steamer back in 1913, just before the First War to prove the supremacy of petro-powered tanks and armored cars and zeppelins and planes? No one has ever begun to explain that mystery. People didn't realize so well that oil is as much a thing of the salt water, especially the shallows above the continental shelves, as it is of the shores. I, I say that Diesel knew too much and was snatched because he didn't. The same may have been true of Ambrose Bierce, who disappeared at almost the same time down in the oil lands between Mexico and Texas, though I don't insist on that. The history of the oil industry has started with what some call legends, but I believe are mostly true accounts of men who invented new fuels or made other key discoveries and then dropped out of existence without another word spoken. And the oil millionaires? They're not exactly famous for humanitarianism and civilized cosmopolitan outlook. And every oil field has its tales of savagery and its black ghosts. The fields of Southern California as much as the rest. I found it difficult, or more truthfully, uncomfortable, to adjust to Dalloway's new mood of piled revelations and sudden wild guesses in contrast to his previous tight-lipped secrecy, and especially to these last assertions about a black, lurking, infernal host here in the ultra-modern, garishly new American Southwest. But not too difficult. I have never been one to be dogmatically skeptical about preternatural agencies, or to say that Southern California cannot have ghosts because its cities are young and philistine and raw, that sprawl across so much of the inhospitable desert coast, and because the preceding amber and emission cultures were rather meager, the Nedens dull and submissive, and the Padres austere and cruel. Ghostliness is a matter of atmosphere, not age. I've seen an unsuccessful subdivision in Hollywood that was, to me, more ghostly than the hoariest building I ever viewed in New England. Only 30 years ago, they had sawed down the underbrush and laid out a few streets and put in sidewalks and a water pipe and a few hydrants, but then the lot buyers and home builders never materialized, and now the place is a wilderness of towering weeds and brush, with the thin top streets eroded so that at some points they are a dozen feet below the hanging and undereaten sidewalks, and the water pipe is exposed and rusting, and each hydrant is in the midst of a yellow thicket and the only living things to be seen are the tiny, darting lizards and an occasional swift, sinuous snake or velvet, dark, shifty tarantula or whatever else it is that rustles the dry, near-impassable vegetation. Southern California is full of such ghost districts and ghost towns, despite the spate of new building and hill chopping and swamp draining that has come with the rocket plants and television and the oil refineries and the sanatoria and think factories and all the other institutions contributing to the area's exploding population. Or I could let you look down into Potrero Canyon, an eroded earthquake crack which cuts through the populous Pacific Palisades and other postal address in Los Angeles but I could hardly lead you down into it because its sides are everywhere too steep and choke with manzanita and sumac and scrub oak, where they don't fall away altogether in the clay notch of its bottom. Trackless and almost impenetrable, Potrero Canyon dreams there mysteriously, the home of black foxes and coyotes, and silently soaring sinister hawks, 
oblivious to the bright, costly modern dwelling is at its top, the deep romantic chasm, a savage place, holy and enchanted, to borrow the words of Coleridge. Or I could invite you on any clear day to look across the Pacific at the mysterious, romantically crested Santa Barbara Islands, all of their 218,000 acres, save for Santa Catalina's 55,000, forbidden territory by government UK's or private whim. Even the earth of Southern California, sedimentary, lacking a strongly knit rocky skeleton, seems instinct with strange energies hardly known in geologically stabler eras, and lending a weird plausibility to Dalloway's theory of sentient seeking secretive oil. Every year there are unforeseen earthfalls, and falls of houses too, and mudslides that drown dwellings and engulf cars. Only in 1958, one of them sent half of a hundred-foot-high hill slumping forward to bury the Pacific Coast Highway. There were more than six months filling in beach, trucks running rock day and night to get a bed on which to lay the road around it. Once, not too long ago, they called that road Roosevelt Highway, but now it's Cabrillo Highway or El Camino Real. Just as the street names straining for glamour have progressed from Spanish to British to Italian and back to Spanish again, and the favorite subdivision names from Palisades to Heights to Knolls to Acres to Rivieras to Mesas to Condominiums. In Southern California, seemingly history can run backwards with an unconscious fierce sardonicism. And then there are all the theosophists, mystics, occultists, genuine and sham, who came swarming to Southern California in the early decades of the century. A good many of them were sensitive to the uncanny forces here and were drawn by them, as well as by the lavish gypsy camp of the movie makers, the bank rolls of retired and the elderly uh, health addicts' climate, the last somewhat marred by chilly, damp western winds and burningly dry Santa Ana's threatening vast brush fires and now by smog. And the occultists kept swarming here, the I Am folk with their mysterious mountain saints and glittering meetings and evening dress, the barefoot followers of Krishna Venta and the mysterious errand of mercy appearances they made at local disasters, and finally their own Great Box Canyon mystery explosion of December 7th, 1958, which claimed 10 lives, including possibly their leaders. The Rosicrucians, the Theosophists, Catherine Tingley and Annie Besant, the latter's world master Krishnamurti still living quietly in Ojai Valley, the high-minded self-realization movement, the dead body of whose founder resisted corruption for at least 20 days, as testified by Forest Lawn Morticians, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who fictionalized the fabulous words of theosophy on Mars and is immortalized in Tarzana, the flying saucer cultists with their great desert conventions, beautiful Gloria Lee listening rapidly to her man on Jupiter. There is no end to them. So when Dalloway began to rehearse to me his fearful suspicions, or beliefs rather, about oil's black ghosts, or acolytes, or agents, or butted off black, amoeboid, humanoid creatures, or whatever exactly they might be, I was uneasily sympathetic to the idea, if not consciously credulous. Good lord, if there could be such things as ghosts, it would be easy to imagine them in Venice. Ghosts of the Channel Indians and those whom the Indians called the Ancient Ones, ghosts of Cabrillo's men when he discovered this coast in 1592 before he died on windswept forbidden San Miguel, westernmost of the Santa Barbara Islands, ghosts from the harsh theocratic mission days and the lawless Mexican years that followed, ghosts of the Spanish and Yankee dons, ghosts of gold seekers and vigilantes and anarchists and strike breakers, and ghosts of the gamblers and gondoliers and the other folk from the illusion-packed years, especially now that the illusions are edging back again. In the swampy south end of Venice, they've just built a great marina or small boat harbor with fingers of 
see interlocking fingers of low-lying land and with all sorts of facilities for luxurious dockside apartments and homes, if the buyers materialize and if they fully subdue the strange tidal waves which first troubled the marina, there is even talk of linking the marina to the old canal system and cleaning that up and filling it all year round and perhaps bringing back the gondolas. Though, at the same time, by a cackling irony, a battle goes on in the courts as to whether or not industry may be licensed to drill for offshore oil, setting up its derricks in the shallows off the Pacific, just beyond the breakers, the beat against the beaches of Venice. Wells Martians submerged to their chests in waves. In our modern world, illusion and greed generally walk hand in hand. So was by no means with complete skepticism about his wild theory of black buried oil and its creatures that I listened to Dalloway's accounts of his dreams of the black gondola, or rather his dreams since it was always basically the same, with minor variations. I will tell it one time in his words, as he most fully told it, remembering too how I heard it in his cramped trailer late at night, perhaps just after the passing of the wailing drunken guitarist, no other sound but the faint distant rattle of the breaking waves and the slow throb of the oil pump a few yards beyond the thin metal wall with the small half-curtain window in it, the edges of my mind crawling with thoughts of black preternatural creatures that might be on watch outside the same wall and pressing even closer. I'm always sitting in the black gondola when the dream begins, Dalloway said. I'm facing the prow and my hands grip the gunnels to either side. Apparently I've just left the trailer and I got a border, though I never remember that part. For in the canal outside, which is full of the top of its banks, there's oil on my clothes. I can feel it. But I don't know how it got there. It's night, of course, dark night. The street lights are all out. There's just enough glow in the sky to silhouette the houses. No light shows in any of their windows, only the glimmer coming between them, a glimmer no brighter than the phosphorescence that paints the breakers some summer nights when the sewage breeds too big an algae crop and there's a fish kill. And the glimmer and glow are just enough to show the tiny ripples angling out from the gondola's prow as you move along. It's a conventional gondola, narrow and with a high prow, but it's black, sooty black, no highlights reflect from it. You know, gondola also means coal car. It was black, open-top cars in the railroads. I've ridden the freights often enough. Perhaps there's a connection there. I can hear the swish and the faint, fluid-muffled thump of the gondolier's pole against the bottom as he drives us along. It's thudded in the same slow rhythm as the pumping of the oil wells, but I cannot look around him. I, I dare not. The fact is, I'm frozen with terror. Both the voiceless gondolier standing behind me and of our destination, though I cannot yet conceive or name that. My grip on the gunnels tightens convulsively. Sometimes I try to visualize what the gondolier looks like, Never in my dreams, but at times like this. What his appearance would be if I had the courage to turn my head, or if the dream changed so that I was forced to look at him. And yet I get a glimpse of a thin figure, about seven feet tall. 
His shoulders are twisted and his head bent forward is hooded. The rest of his clothing is tight-fitting down to his long, narrow, sharply pointed shoes. His big, long-fingered hands grip the black pole strongly. And everywhere he himself is black, not, not dull black like the gondola, but gleaming black, as if he were thickly coated with black oil, which is just the faintest greenish sheen to it, as if he were some infernal merman newly swum up from the depths of a great oil ocean. But in my dream, I dare not look or even think of him. We turn into the Grand Canal and head towards the marina, but there are no lights there or on the heights of La Playa del Rey and beyond. There are no stars in the sky, only that exceedingly faint shimmer. I watch for the lights of a plane mounting from the International Airport, even one tiny red-green pair moving across the sky out to sea so far away would be a great comfort to me, but none comes. The reek of the oil is strong. In how many dreams do we experience odors? This is the only one where it's happened to me. We pass under two of the bridges. The glimmer shows me that they're curving, ruin-notched outlines and one or two of the ragged fragments of cement dangling by the wires embedded in them. The reek grows stronger, and now at last I notice a change in our movement, although the bow ripples have the same angles and the muffled thud of the pole has the same slow rhythm. The change is simply that the gondola is settled a little deeper in the water, not more than two or three inches. I ponder the problem. None had entered the boat, nothing before me that I have seen or behind me that I have felt. I scrape my feet against the bottom. It's dry. No water has entered. Yet the gondola is riding deeper. Why? The reek goes stronger still, suffocatingly so almost. The gondola settles still deeper in the water, so deep in fact that the ends of my fingers on the outside of the gunnels are immersed. And now the problem is solved. Touch tells me that the gondola is riding not in water, but in oil. Rather, in an ever-thickening layer of oil on top of the water. The thicker the layer gets, the deeper the boat sinks. Dalloway stared at me sharply. That would actually be true, you know, he interjected. A boat would ride very high in a sea of mercury because the stuff is heavier than lead, but low in a sea of gasoline or petroleum. In fact, it would sink if it hadn't freeboard enough because the stuff is light. Petroleum may have as little as seven-tenths the weight of water, which is odd considering the thick greases we get out of it. Yet thick greases like Vaseline float. And it would be true, too, like a, that a boat riding in a layer of oil floating atop water, an oil layer thinner than the boat's draft, would sink proportionately deeper as the layer got thicker until it was riding wholly in oil. Then it would get steady, or sink for good. The layer of oil in which my gondola is riding is getting thicker at all events. 
he went on, resuming the narration of his dream. I get the impression that we are reaching a length of the Grand Canal in which there is nothing but oil. The black stuff begins to pour over the gunnels in a thin, sleek waterfall. Yet the black gondola is moving ahead and steadily and strongly as ever and even more swiftly. We are like an airplane taking off downward. Or like a submarine diving. I nerve myself to loosen my grip on the gunnels and make a wild plunge toward the bank, although I fear I will drown even in that short distance. But at that instant, the gondolier's pole comes down firmly on my right shoulder, projecting perhaps a yard ahead of me and pinning me to my seat. Though its injunction not to move is more hypnotic or magical than physical, it's absolute. I cannot stir or break my grip on the submerging gondola. I know this is death. I peer yearningly one last time for the lights of a mounting airplane. Then, as the oil moving past me in an unending sleep caress mounts to my face, I shut my lips. I hold my breath. I close my eyes. The oil covers me. I'm aware in those last paralyzed seconds that we're moving still more swiftly towards the black stuff. Yet the solid oil rushing past does not unseat me from the gondola or even tug at me. The effect is always of some unending caress. Death and agony do not come. I wait for the urge to breathe to become overpowering. There is no urge. The straining muscles of my chest and jaw and face relax. I can open my eyes. I can see through the oil. It's become my medium of vision. I, by a darkly green shimmering, I can see that still descending and even more swiftly now we're traversing a great rocky cavern filled with oil. Evidently we plunge into it from the Grand Canal by way of some unsuspecting gate or lock, while I waited with closed eyes for my death spasm. During the same period of blindness, the black gondolier has moved from behind me and taken up a position now, a little ahead of the black gondola, dragging it along like some mythic slim long dolphin or infernal merman. Now and again, past the forward gunnels, I glimpse, greenly outlined in mid-kick, the black soles of his long, narrow, sharply pointed feet, Biffid narrow tail fin. I say to myself, I have received the black baptism. I have partaken of the black communion. Our speed ever increasing, we pass through weird grottoes. We twist and turn through narrow passageways whose irregular walls flash with precious gems and nuggets of golden copper. We soar through great vaults domed with crusty salt crystals glittering like thick packed diamonds. I know, even in my dream, that this picture of underground oil and vast interconnected lakes and tanks is false by all geology, that untapped oil is mixed with earth and porous rocks and shales and sand, not free. But the picture, the experience, remains the same and exquisitely real. Perhaps I've suffered a size change become microscopic. Perhaps I've suffered a sense change and I see things symbolically. I mean, perhaps geology is false. 
our speed becomes impossible. We flash about like a single black corpuscle in the oil plasma of the great world creature. I know intuitively the one instant we are beneath the Caracas, in Baku, Iraq, Iran, India, Indonesia, Argentina, Colombia, Oklahoma, Algeria, Antarctica, Atlantis. It's more as if we were flashing through black outer space, softly gleaming with galaxies, than through Earth's steps. There is a feeling of a nightmare ride now. Wild whirlings and spiralings, a blurred glitter, a blessed sense of fatigue. Yet at the same time, I've become aware that the white-green sinuous gleamings I see are nerves of oil, which stretch everywhere to the tiniest well that I am approaching the great brain, that I will soon see God. And I never, even in this nightmare phase, lose the awareness of the close presence of my conductor. From time to time, I still glimpse in frozen instants, standing out sharply against the glistening green, the black shapes of his long, sharply pointed lower extremities. There the dream ends. I can no longer endure its flashing transitions. I am outwearied. I wake sweating and groaning or fall into a deeper, dreamless sleep from which I slowly arouse hours later lethargic and spent. As he finished his narrative, he would generally give me a tired, questioning look, smiling thinly as if the extravagance of it all, but with a loneliness in his eyes that made me think of him looking hopelessly in his dream for the lights of a distant plain as the black gondola went under. That was Dalloway's dream. To describe my reactions to it is more difficult. Remember, he didn't tell it to me all at once, but only sketchily at first with an air of, here's a ridiculous dream. Later, much more seriously, putting in the details, building the picture. Also remembering that he dreamed about it six times during the period of our friendship, and that each time the dream was somewhat fuller, and he told me more of it, and between times revealed to me more of his wild theory of world oil bit by bit, and revealed bit by bit, too, how deeply he believed or felt this theory. Remember, finally, that his nerves were in pretty good shape when he first told me the dream, but pretty bad towards the last. I seem to recall the first time or two we both poked at the dream psychoanalytically. There were obvious birth and death and sex symbols in it, uh, trips through fluid, Returning to the womb, the caress of oil, the gondolier's punting pole, passages under bridges, twisting tunnels, difficulties in breathing, flying sensations, the usual stuff. I think he advanced the rather far-fetched notion that his disappearing into strangling darkness with an unknown menacing male indicated unconscious fears of homosexuality, while well, I championed the prosier explanation that the whole horror of oil might merely stand in for his resentment at having to work at a mechanic to earn a living. But the last time he told it to me, we just looked at each other for a long while. And I went over stoopingly and drew the curtain fully across the little window in the side of the low ceiling trailer towards the oil well in the night. 
And we began to talk about something else, something trivial. By that time, you see, he'd had the first of his outbursts of more active fear. It had been touched off by a rumor or report that petroleum was leaking into the Grand Canal through some underground fissure, perhaps from a defective well. He wanted us to walk over to the spot and have a look. But the sun set before we got there, and we couldn't see any lights indicating men at work or hunting for the leak. And he suddenly decided it would be too much trouble, and we turned back. The dark comes quite quickly in Venice. Los Angeles is near enough to the Tropic of Cancer, so you can see all of Scorpius and the Southern Crown, too. And Venice's narrow streets, half of them only pedestrian passageways blocked off to cars, swiftly grow gloomy. I remember that going back, we hurried a bit, stumbling through sand and around rubbish, but hardly enough to account for the way Dalloway was gasping by the time we reached his trailer. Once, during the unconfessed flight, we, while we were crossing an empty lot by the Grand Canal, he stopped me by catching hold of my elbow, and then he led us in a circle around a slightly darker stretch of ground, almost as if he feared it were a scummed-over, dust-camouflaged oil pool which might engulf us. You do run into such things in oil fields, though I've never heard of them in Venice. And two or three times later that night, Dalloway made excuses to go out and scan the light-patched darkness towards the Grand Canal almost as if he expected to see tongues of petroleum running toward us across the low ground, or shapes approaching. To quiet his nerves and to put the thing on a more rational basis, I pointed out that, as he himself had told me, natural oil leakages are by no means uncommon in the Pacific Southland. Ocean bathers are apt to get bits of tar on their feet, and they usually blame it on modern industry and its poorly disposed wastes seldom discovering that it is asphalt from undersea leakages which were recurring regularly long before Cabrillo's time. Another example, this one in the heart of western Los Angeles, is La Brea Tar Pits, which trap many saber-toothed tigers in their prey, as the asphalt-impregnated bones testify. There's a tautology here. Brea means tar. Other glamorous-sounding old Los Angeles street names have equally ugly or homely meanings. Las Pulas means the fleas, Temescal means sweat house, while La Cienega, Street of the Wonder Restaurants, means the swamp. My efforts were ill-considered. Dalloway's nerves were not quieted. He muttered, Damn oil killing animals, too. Well, at least it got the exploiters as well as the exploited. And he stepped out again to scan the night, the growl of the pump suddenly growing louder as he opened the door. The report of the petroleum leakage turned out to have been much exaggerated. I don't recall hearing how they fixed it up if they ever did, but it gave me an uncomfortable insight into the state of Dalloway's nerves, and it didn't do my own any good either. There was the disastrous business of Dalloway's car. He bought an old jalopy for almost nothing at all about this time, and he put it in good shape, expending most of his dwindling cash reserve buying essential replacements at second hand. I inwardly applauded. I thought his manual work would be therapeutic. Incidentally, Dalloway repeatedly refused my offers of a small loan. Then one evening, I dropped over to find the car gone. Dalloway just returned from a long, half-hitchhike trudge and pitifully strained and shaky. It seemed he'd been driving the car along the San Bernardino freeway when a huge kerosene truck just ahead of him jackknifed in an underpass and spilled its tank and its load and caught a fire. I had heard about the accident on the radio just a few hours earlier. It tied up the freeway for almost half a day. 
Dalloway had managed to bring his car to a swerving stop in the swift shooting oil. Two other cars, also skidding askew, crashed him lightly from behind, preventing his car's escape. He managed to leap out and run away before the fire got to it. The truck driver escaped too, miraculously. But Dalloway's car, uninsured of course, was burned to a shriveling black ruin with several others. Dalloway never admitted to me straight out that he'd been escaping from Venice and L.A., leaving them for good when that catastrophe on the San Bernardino freeway thwarted him. I suppose he was ashamed to admit that he would go away without telling me his plans or even saying goodbye. I would have understood, I think. Some partings have to be made with ruthless suddenness before the fire of decision burns out. But a big old suitcase that used to stand inside the door of the trailer was gone. And I imagine it burned with the car. Later, the police neatly turned all this into an argument for their theory that Dalloway's ultimate departure from Venice was voluntary. He'd once started to leave without informing me, they pointed out, and would have, except for the accident. His money was running out. There was a month's rent owing on the trailer at the end. He had a history of briefly held jobs alternating with periods of roving or dropping out of sight, or so they claimed. What more natural, then, that he should have seized on some sudden opportunity or inspiration to decamp. I had to admit they had a point of sorts. It turned out that the police had an old grudge against Dalloway. They once suspected him of being mixed up in marijuana traffic. Well, that may have been true, I suppose. He admitted to me having smoked hemp a few times years before. I used to carpet horror stories in which the protagonist could at any time have departed from the focus of the horror, generally some lonely, dismal spot like Dalloway's trailer, but instead insisted on staying there, though shaking with fear until he was engulfed. Since my experience with Dalloway, I've changed my mind. Dalloway did try to leave. He made that one big effort with the car, and it was foiled. He lacked the energy to make another. He became fatalistic. And perhaps the urge to stay and see what would happen, always strong, I imagine, curiosity being a fundamental human trait, at that point became somewhat stronger than the opposing urge to flee. That evening, after the freeway accident, I stayed with him a long time, trying to cheer him up and get him to look at the accident as a chance occurrence, not some cat-and-mousing malignancy aimed directly and solely at him. After a while, I thought I was succeeding. You know... I hung back of that truck for fully ten minutes, afraid to pass, though I had enough speed, he admitted. I kept thinking something would happen while I was passing it. You see, I said, if you'd passed it right off, you wouldn't have been involved in the accident. You courted danger by sticking close behind a vehicle you probably knew, at least subconsciously, was behaving dangerously. We can all have accidents that way. No. Dalloway replied, shaking his head. Then the accident would have come earlier, don't you understand? It was an oil truck. And if I had got by it, the oil would have stopped me some way. I'm convinced of that now. Even if it had to burst out in a spontaneous gusher beside the highway and skin into my car. Remember how the oil burst out of Signal Hill and... 33 Long Beach earthquake float inches thick down the streets. Well, at any rate, you escaped with your life, I pointed out, 
trying to salvage a little of my imagined advantage. It didn't want to kill me there. Dalloway countered gloomily. It just wanted to herd me back. It's got something else in store for me. Now, look here, I burst out, a little angry and and trying to sound more so. If we all argued that way, there wouldn't be any trifling mischance that couldn't be twisted into some murder attempt by some weird power. Just this morning, I found a gas leak in my kitchen. Am I to think? It's after you now, too, he interrupted me, paling and starting to his feet. Natural gas, petroleum, the same thing. Siblings. Keep off me. It's not safe. I warned you before. You better get out now. I wouldn't agree to that, of course. But the couple hours more I stayed with Dalloway didn't improve his mood or mine either. He set himself to analyzing last year's Los Angeles catastrophe when a 300 million gallon water reservoir broke its thick earthen wall in the Baldwin Hills and did tens of millions of dollars worth of water damage, floating and tumbling cars and flooding thousands of homes and smashing buildings with a deluge of water and mud, though only a few lives were lost because of an efficient warning by motorcycle police and a helicopter cruising with a bullhorn. Those were oil wells by the reservoir, he said. Even the purblind officials admit that the soil's subsidence from oil drilling may have started the leaks. But do you remember the east-west bounds of the flood? From La Brea to La Cienega, the tar to the swamp. What was the substance lining the reservoir? What was that stuff that craftily weakened from point to point and then gave way at the crucial moment triggering the thing? Asphalt. Men did the drilling, Dalloway, I argued wearily. Asphalt is inert. Inert. Yes, like the uranium atom. What moves the Dowser's wands? Do you think that men run things up here? By the time I was left, I was glad to be gone, and disgusted with myself for wasting too much time, and very irked at Dalloway, and glad I had an engagement the next evening that would prevent me from visiting him. For the first time in weeks, going home that night, I wondered if Dalloway mightn't be an all-out psychopath. At the same time, I found myself so nervous about the very faint stench of oil in my car that I opened all the windows, though there was a chilly fog, and even then I kept worrying about the motor and the oil in it as it heated. Damn it, the man was poisoning my life with his paranoid suspicions and dreads. He was right. I better keep off him. But the next night, a thunderstroke woke me about two. There was rain sizzling and rattling on the roof and gurgling loudly in the resonating metal drain pipes. Right away, I was thinking how much louder it must be pounding on Dalloway's trailer, wondering how apt lightning striking an oil well was to cause a fire. Things like that. It was our first big downpour of the season, rather early in the fall, too, and it kept on, a regular cloudburst, and the lightning, too. I must have listened to them for a couple of hours, thinking about Dalloway and his wild ideas, which didn't seem so wild now with the storm going, and picturing Venice with its canals filling fast with its low, crowded houses and oil wells and derricks under the fist of the rain and the lightning's shining spear. 
I think it was chiefly the thought of the canals being full that finally got me up and dressed around five and off in the dark to see how Dalloway was faring. The rain had by now stopped, and of course the thunder too, but there were signs of the storm everywhere. My headlights showed me falling branches, fans of eroded mud and gravel crossing the streets, gutters still brimming, a few intersections still shallowly flooded, and a couple of wide buttons of water still pouring up from manholes whose heavy tops had been displaced by the pressure from brim-filled flumes. Hardly any private automobiles were abroad yet, but I met a couple of fire trucks and lightened power trucks and cars off on emergency errands. And when I got to Venice, Dalloway's end was dark. There'd evidently been a power failure here. I kept on, a bit cautious now that my headlights were just about the only illumination there was. Venice seemed like a battered city of the dead, a storm-bomb ruin. I hardly saw a soul or a light, only a candle back of a window here and there. But the streets weren't flooded anywhere too deep along my usual route, and just as I sensed the eastern sky paling a little, I crossed the narrow high-humped bridge. No need to tap my horn this time, and swung into my usual parking place, and stopped my car and switched off the light and got out. I must be very careful to get things right now. My first impression, which the motor of my car had masked up to now, was of the great general silence. All the sounds of the storm were gone except for the tiny occasional drip of the last drop of a leaf off a roof. The oil well by Dalloway's trailer was still pumping, though. There was an odd wheezy hiss in it that I have never heard before, and after each hiss a faint tinkly spatter as of drops hitting sheet metal. I walked over to the edge of the canal. There was just enough light for me to manage that safely. I stooped beside it. Just as I had imagined... It was full to the brim. Then I'd heard the other sounds, a faint rhythmic swish, and spaced about three seconds apart, faint muffled thuds that would be made by a gondolier's pole. I stared down the black canal, my heart suddenly pounding and my neck cold. For a moment I thought I saw, in murkiest silhouette, the outlines of a gondola with gondolier and passenger going away from me. But I simply couldn't be sure. Fences blocked the canal for me that way, even if I'd had the courage to follow, and I ran back to my car for my flashlight. Halfway back with it, I hesitated, wondering if I shouldn't drive the car to the canal edge and use my high headlight beams. But I wasn't sure I could position it right. I kept on to the canal and directed my flashlight beam towards it. In the first flare of light and vision... I thought I saw the black gondola, much smaller now, near the turn in the Grand Canal. But the beam wavered, and I got it properly directed again. A matter of a fraction of a second, the canal seemed empty. I kept swinging my flashlight a little, up and down, side to side, for quite a few seconds and studying the canal. But it seemed empty. I was half inclined to jump into my car and take the long swing around to the road paralleling the Grand Canal, I did do that somewhat later on, but now I decided to go to the trailer first. After all, I hadn't made any noise to speak of, and Dalloway might well be there asleep. It would only take seconds to check. Everything I'd heard and seen so far might conceivably be imagination. The auditorium visual impressions had both been very faint, though they still seemed damnably real. There was a hint of pink in the east now. I heard that unfamiliar hissing wheeze from the oil well with subsequent faint splatter, 
and I paused to direct my light at it, and then, after a bit, the wall of Dalloway's trailer. Something had gone wrong with the pump, so that it had sprung a leak, and with every groaning stroke, a narrow stream of petroleum was sprayed against the wall of Dalloway's trailer, blotching it darkly and through the little window which stood open. It was never afterwards established whether a lightning stroke had something to do with this failure of the valves at the pump, though several people living around there later assured me that two of the lightning strokes had been terrific, something to hit their roofs. Personally, I've always had the feeling that the lightning unlocked something. The door to the trailer was shut but not locked. I opened it and flashed my light around the walls. Dalloway wasn't anywhere there. Nobody was. The first thing I'd flashed my light steadily on was Dalloway's bunk under the little open window. At that moment, there came the hissing wheeze and oil rattled against the wall of the trailer, and some came through the window, pattering softly on the rough brown blankets, adding a little to the gray black stain on them. The oil stank. Then I directed my flashlight another way, and was frozen by horror. What I'd heard and seen by the bank of the canal might have been imagination. One has to admit that he can always be fooled by the faint borderlines of sensation. But this that I saw now was starkly and incontrovertibly real and material. The accident to the oil pump, no matter how sardonically grim and suggestive in view of Dalloway's theories, could merely be an accident. But this that I saw now could be no accident was either evidence of a premeditated supernormal malignancy or, as the police insist, of a carefully planned and executed hoax. Incidentally, the police looked at me speculatively as they made this last suggestion. After a while, I got control of myself to the point where I could trace what I saw to its ending and then back again, still using my flashlight to supplement the gathering dawn. A little later, I'd made the roundabout car trip I mentioned to the Grand Canal and searched furiously along it, running down to its bank at several spots and venturing out on a couple of ruined bridges. I saw no signs of any boat or any body at all, or of any oil either, for that matter, though the odor is always strong there. Then I went to the police. Almost at once and a little to my shame, I found myself resorting to the subterfuge of emphasizing the one point that my friend Dalloway had almost crazy obsessive fear of drowning in the Grand Canal and that this might be a clue to his disappearance. I guess I had to take that line. The police were at least willing to give some serious attention to the possibility of a demented suicide, whereas they could hardly have been expected to give any to the hypothesis of a black, inanimate, ancient, almost ubiquitous liquid engineering a diabolical kidnapping. Later, they assured me that they inspected the canal and had found no evidence of bodies or sunken boats in it. They didn't drag it, at least not all of it, and that ended the investigation for them. As for the real and material evidence back at the trailer, well, as I've said at least twice before, the police insisted that was a hoax, perpetuated either by Dalloway or myself. And now the investigation has ended for me too. I dare not torture my mind any longer with a theory that endows with purposeful life the deepest buried darkness that makes man and his most vaunted technological achievements the sardonic whim of that darkness and invests it with a hellish light visible only to its servitors or to those about to become its slaves. No, I dare no longer think in that direction, no matter how conclusive the evidence I saw with my own eyes. I almost flipped when I saw it. 
and I will flip if I go on thinking about it, what that evidence was. What I saw back at the trailer when I directed my flash another way, frozen horror, and later traced the thing from end to end, was simply this. A yard-long black straight indentation in the bank of the canal by Dalloway's trailer, as if cut by one end of the keel of an oil-drenched boat, and then, leading from that point to Dalloway's oil-soaked bunk and back again, a little wider and more closely spaced on the way back, as if something were being carried. The long, narrow, sharply pointed footprints marked in blackest, thickest oil of the black gondolier.